clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us this afternoon for today's uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today, Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming will be in conversation with Jenny Johnson, President and CEO of Franklin Resources Incorporated. With that, please allow me to introduce our President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good afternoon, everybody. Clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues at Rockefeller, and other friends of Rockefeller. And welcome to our 22nd in the special client series that we've been running since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, it's my uh, special pleasure today uh, to introduce Jenny Johnson, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Franklin Resources as our guest. Jenny, in addition to uh, being the senior operating uh, person at Franklin, is on the board of directors there and has had a long and distinguished career at Franklin that began in 1988. Over more than three decades, she's managed all major aspects of the business, including investment management, distribution, customer service, fund administration, technology, and Franklin's high net worth business. And I run through that whole list because she's seen it all and now she's the boss. Uh, in 2020, Jenny was named to Barron's inaugural list of the 100 most influential women in US finance. She's been named one of money management executives top women in asset management and, and was chosen by her peers as one of Ignite's most influential women in fund management. So Jenny's had a tremendous career, had an impact uh, on Franklin, obviously, uh, but also across the industry. She's a pioneer in many respects. And again, we're really fortunate to have her here with us today. So Jenny, good afternoon and welcome. Great, it's great to be here, Greg. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Uh, we've got uh, a whole bunch of things that we're gonna talk to Jenny about. And as Tom said, uh, we will continue to take questions in through Teams. So send your questions in and Jenny and I will uh, work some of those in uh, over the course of the hour. So Jenny, I was hoping we could start given uh, the, the uh, company that Franklin has become uh, with a little bit about its history. Uh, it's, um, you know, it started as a fixed income mutual fund company. Uh, I think uh, that'll go back to the 70s, but you can, you can uh, nail it down for me. And then you went through major acquisitions, including an international equities with Templeton, domestic equities with mutual series, and we'll get to the most recent Leg Mason deal. But can you uh, talk a little bit about Franklin and, uh, and how it became the uh, major a significant global player that it is today? Well, I mean, so actually, Greg, it all goes back to 1947 when my grandfather started it. Uh, and But my father took over in 1957 when there were two and a half million dollars in assets and a part-time secretary. My grandfather had a brokerage business. Uh, so, uh, and, and when it started, it actually was doing, it had utility fund, fixed income and equities. But to your point, we were early adopters of money market funds in the 70s, and then municipal bond funds, real pioneers in there. And that, so that's what really built then the fixed income franchise. So to the point where we acquired Templeton in 1992, uh, we were sure John Templeton described it as, you know, the perfect gloves fitting together, uh, where we were 80% fixed income at that point, 20% equity, and they were the reverse. Uh, and then, you know, today with the acquisition of Leg Mason, we're now at, at 1.5 trillion. Uh, as a firm, so. That's an amazing trajectory. I didn't, I knew it went back, uh, but the 70s with fixed income is really where you started to scale. 
and then you had the foresight, you and and uh, and, and many of your peers uh, and uh, along the way, the uh, you know the other leaders of uh, Franklin over the years to add these building blocks. I mean, Templeton was arguably the first great acquisition done in the asset management industry. That was 1992, right? Uh, uh, and um, uh, you know, and you you had been at the company for four years then, so that must have been a major moment inside the firm. I mean, it was huge. It was transformational. And, you know, it was the largest acquisition in the history of asset management. Um, and to be honest, you know, John Templeton was uh, way ahead of everybody in his view of the opportunities on international investing. Uh, and the asset management industry in the U.S. just wasn't that focused outside. I was looking at a data recently and about, about a third of market cap was outside the U.S. at that time. And so people, you know, were focused on the U.S. Today, that number is almost 60%. Um, so you have to be there and everybody's there. But at the time, people weren't really focused on it. And I think it was just a tremendous opportunity for us because we recognized not only from an investment universe the opportunity to invest outside, but also from the clients, you know, that, that we, we have clients now in 160 countries. And that really came out of the comfort that you got with the Templeton deal of you know starting to understand markets and and um, and be able to sell into those markets. Yeah, and actually uh, uh, today, uh, in great part because of Templeton, but the other things that you built in, arguably when I think about it, Franklin is probably the most global asset management firm in the world. Uh, you know, not just among the Americans, but among any of the asset management firms competing cross border. Uh, I think you're in 35 countries physically. Uh, you probably invest in more uh, local countries than anybody else and clients, as you said, in over 100 countries. Uh, so, but that is probably right, that you're the, the most global firm. So I like to say, you know, we have investable feet on the ground in 87% of the world's GDP. And, um, you know, we'll, that's a point I think is a real differentiator for us as a firm, which is, you know, we're really active investors. Uh, so when we say there's feet on the ground in these places, we have people speaking the language, reading the paper there, going to business schools, uh, you know, with the other executives running companies there, uh, and 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 really understanding that local market. Uh, somebody once said to me, "Look, if you're a U.S. investor investing in India, you're you've it, the rumor's gone past all the local guys, and it's finally getting to you in New York City." Uh, and I think there's some truth to that. Obviously, with information flow now, it's it's faster and faster. But there is a benefit to really having feet on the ground. Uh, and as a you know a firm that has global products, but also local asset management in a lot of countries uh, that are a local team investing in either equity or fixed income, equity and fixed income, and just selling into that local market. But their research then can feed into our global products. And there's just no other firm with that kind of footprint. Yeah. Now, Jenny, that, um, you know, pre-pandemic, that probably led you to be on the road fairly frequently. Uh, Post-pandemic, uh, how has, and I want to come back to Lake Mason, but just on this theme, you've got this uh, global firm operating uh, in, in, you know, 35 countries and thousands of employees. So what has it been like leading a firm like that through a pandemic? So as you mentioned, I ran technology uh, way back when. And at the time, we were very focused because we were building out a global technology team. You, you know, wherever you have an office, you have to have technology people. And we were also expanding some of our development in India places. And we recognized that 
it's challenging enough to try to you know manage things that where people are on the phone uh, but now you add the cultural complexity to that and you you know 70% of of communication they say is the nonverbal component so we back gosh it must have been in the you know early 2000s really pushed for text desktop video when it was a hardware device that was separate and so it actually became how we managed as a firm and so to be honest it was Within two weeks, we had 98% of the workforce working from home, including our call centers, because we built the technology and the culture already. And that, again, was really out of recognition that when you had people from different cultures, they needed to be able to see each other. Um, so I think that part we was, was a real advantage to us in this environment. Um, you know, I got to tell you, to be honest, I have loved not having to get on an airplane, but I know that I will have to get back on an airplane. There's just nothing to replace visiting clients face-to-face. -face. Will we have to do it as often? I don't think so, um, but we're still going to have to find you know, some amount of, of, uh, of travel that's going to come back. Well, I mean, in fairness, I'm with you on the plane, and there are a lot of people who are with you on the less travel, less commuting time, uh, and I do think that uh, even for companies uh, like ours is similar. I, I keep telling our team that, look, we're ultimately going to be office-based. Clients will come into the office. There's a intellectual collaboration that takes place in an office, but that doesn't mean we can't be smart about, you know, do, if somebody has a long commute, do they have to do it, you know, 250 days a year now? Uh, or, you know, if it's a two-hour meeting, can you do it on video instead of uh, flying to London? I mean, the number of trips I'm sure that you did and that I've done over the course of my career, where I go to London for a meeting and then I'm on the flight out that night, uh, I, I think a lot of that is is changed, don't you? For sure. And as a matter of fact, I mean, as you alluded to, we we did our acquisition. We announced our acquisition of Leg Mason in February of last year, and everything was locked down about three weeks later. Uh, but we en ended up closing the acquisition about two months early. And I actually attribute it to the, and, and remember part of what you're doing when you're trying to close an acquisition is you're also doing a talent review. Yeah. And, and the team is today, Franklin Templeton is a real mix of the leadership and the employees of both like Mason and Franklin Templeton. But we think the reason we were able to close it two, two months early uh, was actually, there was efficiencies. You know, you weren't saying, hey, when can everybody go to Baltimore for our meeting? You'd say, tomorrow we're going to have this video call. Uh, let's get everybody together. And I think that there, there are some benefits to it. Again, you know, what our big concern is you bring on so many more new employees and they haven't gotten to see people face to face. You want to ensure the culture. We think the two firms have very similar cultures, so that's good, but you want to have people feel connected. And nothing replaces, again, that face-to-face. -face. Um, so I think the future of our work, and we're going through this right now as we look at, you know, it being in nine locations in New York City, for example, uh, what, what ultimately we want to look at in um, our footprint in New York City. Uh, but I think there's going to be a world where it's really a hybrid, where people come in a couple of days a week to be together. It'll be, you know, planned You'll, you'll rotate which of those days are by teams and the need for people to come in, uh, and then people will work from home other times. And you'll see people, I think, spreading out a little bit further from the urban locations, but still having to come into an office at, you know, sometime during the week. I think that's spot on. Jenny, we, we're a smaller firm, much smaller firm, but we've been growing quickly and have added uh, you know, hundreds of employees during the pandemic. And we have the same 
And listening to you, I, I, I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly the challenge here. We're hiring people that fit a culture that we're, we want to build, and we look for people who want to be part of, you know, a, a culture focused on, I like to say, excellence and collaboration and collegiality. But ultimately, they, they need to see each other physically. Uh, you know, we need to sometimes come together, and, and the video, is, it's, it's a... It's been a, a, a wonderful proxy that none of us could have anticipated, but you still struggle to have the culture. You know, the fact that you closed an acquisition in the middle of this of that size, you know, that's kind of what I'm doing all the time too now with all the people we're bringing in. So I am looking forward to the point where everybody can be in a room. You know, you can even have a drink, you know, a, a cocktail with everybody and, 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 and have an easy conversation where you can pick up that the 70% that you can't pick up on video. Yeah, uh, for sure. So what about, uh, Jenny, on, on, on Leg Mason, uh, just if we pursue that, and then we can talk a little bit about industry consolidation. Uh, that from a strategic standpoint, you know, you, you had been CEO, I think, for a little over a year when you did that deal. So this is kind of a signature statement in the Jenny Johnson era as a CEO, you know, to, to do the deal. So what was the strategic logic? Uh, uh, I, I actually had been CEO for five days before we announced the deal. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I had been announced a few months earlier. Okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, this is this is the the catapult in the general, uh, so. You know, you don't want to waste time, right? You have to get right into it. No, no. In fairness, we had laid out kind of a strategic plan and recognized areas in the industry and in the business that we felt were real holes for us, and they were um, core core plus fixed income, largest asset class, and we just didn't have. The scale, even though you know us as a fixed income manager, we had it in sort of more of these niche type of areas and just didn't have that real scale in the core and core plus. And so that was one area. And then, as you know, alternatives is a growing area. And uh, and we think that democratization of alternatives is, is a trend that's not going to reverse. And so we wanted to have more alternative managers. And and then the benefits of scale, and I can you know, talk about those when we talk about industry consolidation, but there are some benefits, but it was really kind of those growth drivers. When we looked around, we were actually, we, we assumed we'd have to complete that with multiple acquisitions. And it was just incredibly powerful, the combination of bringing in Leg Mason and Franklin Templeton and finding that there was very little product overlap. But not only was there very little product overlap and we got core, core plus fixed income with Western, as well as real estate with Clarion, uh, we, we, we looked at it and they were 75% institutional, 25% retail. We'd been 75% retail, 25% institutional. So suddenly we're 50-50 and that be just comes powerful. And then in some of the biggest markets like Australia, Japan, the UK, you need scale to be relevant in these markets locally. And Bringing the two of us together in Australia, I think we were the 40-something largest manager. They were the 20-something. And now we are the 12th biggest manager in, in Australia. Well, that just gives you a whole different um, you know, opportunity as far as how you can invest in the business and, and invest in additional things around client service and connections with clients. So that's really what the deal brought. And then what surprised us was truly how much the two cultures really feel like. You know, my father always said, take care of the client and and the business takes care of itself uh, and, and never do anything that ever jeopardizes your reputation because you never get it back. Like Mason had a saying of no chalk on your shoe, shoes, no chalk on your shoes. In other words, you know, uh, it, it don't get so close to the out of bounds line that you actually get chalk on your shoes. 
And we've now adopted that because we think that's a great way to express sort of how we felt as a firm of working with integrity. Uh, and so when you bring two firms together with similar cultures, similar values, it's amazing how very quickly everybody's rowing the boat in the same direction. And again, having very little product overlap, that helps because there's not the same sort of competition of, am I gonna be the survivor in this? That's a, I mean, that's a, a compelling uh, strategic overview of, of a great fit. The product complementarity, the client complementarity, the cultural complement, com, you know, complementarity. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, I I, um, uh, I did a lot of work when I was a much younger man, uh, investment banking with Chip Mason. Oh, okay. The chalk on the shoes, I believe, was Chip. It was. And, You're and, right. And Chip, Chip Mason and your father have a lot in common in terms of the approach to business, and he was very much of that uh, mindset. You know. One could say old school, except that you and I have it, and we're hopefully not old school, and hopefully our children have it. But uh, you know, reputation is is earned. You know, in our case, my case too, over thirty, you know, over decades, and and you need to really uh, do everything you can to protect it. But I remember Chip with that statement around the chalk, because uh, I worked with him in the late '90s in the first part of the century on a, on a number of uh, on a number of transactions. So, so interesting, uh, Jim Hirschman, you know, who who's the CEO of at Western. Uh, we had a dinner, and my father uh, was there, and he commented to me how much he was very close to Chip, and and he is still very close to Chip, and he commented how much my father reminded him of Chip. I haven't had the benefit of meeting Chip yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, well, I'm, I, I'm sure that'll happen because I know he's. I think he. I, I told him. He retired, I believe, uh, pre-credit crisis around that time. And I thought he'd have a hard time being retired because he was a very active and hands-on. He had his, his name on the on the company. Uh, but my understanding is he's, and I've traded notes with him occasionally, and with Hirschman. And I, I, uh, I've been told that uh, he's happily retired. So, uh, but you'll see him. Um, but Jenny, if we go from, from that deal, which sounds like a, a, a tremendous one for Franklin, to the industry and all the dialogue, uh, and I, you know, I'm uh, uh, much less involved uh, on a comprehensive basis on the investment banking side. And if I ever am on a panel or something, people still ask me, what's happening in asset management? Is this massive consolidation coming, scale, you know, uh, mutual fund uh, net flows are flat across the industry. It's so hard to, to generate growth. Um, vehicles are changing. Alternatives, as you said, I mean, it was smart of you. We believe that Rockefeller uh, and our clients are high net worth and ultra high net worth. Alternatives are a huge part of, of the puzzle for them and will be. And, and we, we've invested a lot in creating an investment platform to bring the best products to them. So, um, you know, when you look at it from an industry standpoint, do you see, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of activity uh, going forward? And will capacity come out? Like your deal was complementarity, product, distribution, cultural. On, but some deals now, will it be... You know, somebody buys a company and they they're overlapping funds, and that you know half the people get fired. Is that is that on the horizon at some point? So I I don't think you'll see as many of those. I think um, and the, and to be honest, I don't think the street loves those. They want the growth story in it. Uh, that's what we're seeing. And um, you know what you're finding is distributors like to have partners that can provide a lot, fill a lot of the the you know the boxes because. It's hard for them to do due diligence. You know, they got to go visit the firm. They've got to go meet the management. They have to understand the compliance risk management. And so if you can check those boxes and then get really top quality products in a lot of different uh, places, 
that's easier for them to, to work with. So I think that that's the benefit. I also think, look, you know, in this world of uh, just a data revolution that's going on and the amount of investment that's going to be required in technology in this business, you're going to have to have scale to make those investments. Uh, and so I think that, that you know, you're certainly going to get probably, if, I, I'm almost, you know, Greg, embarrassed to say it because you know the industry has been talking about this for probably the last eight years. It's the barbell. It's going to be the big players and the boutique players who survive. And I, 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 but I do think, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I, I tease, uh, Goldman said that in the mid nineties. Yeah, exactly. Mid nineties about the barbell. Yes. <laughs> so that's why I'm like embarrassed to say it, but, but I do think there's some truth to that now because of all the investments that's need to be made uh, on, on the client servicing side and on, frankly, for us as active managers in data uh, and being able to get insights and things. And those are expensive investments. And let's face it, the fees, you know, in the industry, it's always under pressure. Uh, and so making those investments in an environment where you have pressure on fees, you, you got to have more scale. Yeah. Jenny, can we can we pursue that thing for a second? Because uh, it's, it's something that we talk about a lot at Rockefeller, uh, and that's the impact of technology on every single industry in the world. And we've actually invested at, at Rockefeller in best-in-class technology, and we did it right up front. Great team, because clients expect us to be able to deliver technology as good or better than, than big firms. They want to be able to access their accounts. And so technology is so important in our business, in your business, in every industry. And you were talking about uh, data. How is that going to change the 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 asset management and the mutual fund industry? That you know, uh, companies investing in technology and using data in different ways. So I think you have to look at it in in you know kind of the layers of our business. So so from a client service standpoint, I actually think that technology is going to enable the average person to get the kind of services that you provide to a high net worth client. Um, around financial planning, really understanding their goals base, building portfolios that are customized more to the individual goals versus just here's your investment portfolio. There you go. I, you know, you beat the benchmark. So I think on the client service, technology um, becomes relevant there and understanding your client's risk appetite and their true needs because they don't always express them. So you can gather more data to really kind of understand the true needs are going to be relevant to that. I think on the um, on the investment management side, as I alluded to, I think any active manager is going to have to find unique sources of data and apply AI to be able to gain unique insights. And if you're just relying on your old, you know, they filed it, the Edgar filing, and this is what I got on Bloomberg in your model, that's not going to be enough. It's going to be social media sentiment. Um, and, the, and the challenge with these things is, it's, uh, it's expensive to get this data, but a lot of people think about it as the AI is so important in the machine learning. It's, I, I think the real competitive advantage is what raw sources of data do you have that you brought in, that you scrubbed and now made available to your investment teams? And the approach we've taken, you know, we each of our investment teams are completely independent. They, they run their own investment process, their own research there. Uh, but if they want a set of a unique set of data, we will go out and centrally get it. We put it in a, an investment data lake. We scrub it for them. It's available for their use, but now it's available for all of the other investment teams use. So for example, our global macro team has 14 different data feeds to build their ESG model. That comes into this pool. Now any of the other teams have access to it and it's there and available. So I think that, that, that and, and it's expensive. Data is expensive and scrubbing it's expensive. So I think that becomes relevant. And then the final piece of this, 
which we're just at the tip of the iceberg, is blockchain and its impact and tokenization and its impact and unlocking historically illiquid assets and democratizing them. And the worst thing that happened to blockchain was Bitcoin because people immediately blend the two. So put Bitcoin aside, and that's a different question. Uh, but the blockchain with its ability to, I think from a cybersecurity, the fact that you have all these unique sources of truth is going to be important for, for uh, financial firms to be able to protect their information. Um, I think governments are actually going to like blockchain because they're going to be able, as part of the chain, determine who the buyer is on a transaction. It's going to help them to tax. And we as an industry, because one of the big expenses we have is the reconciliation of data amongst a bunch of systems in the in the the chain, the processing chain, that blockchain is going to squeeze out a lot of that reconciliation. And so if you think about tokenization, you know, imagine if somebody said, oh, the World Trade Center, let's sell it to a million different people. Imagine a million different people having to get going to the title company and I want to sell my one millionth to you and all that friction in the transaction. But now imagine I have to just send you the sell you my token and how much friction and transaction is is taken out of the system and you can unlock all of these types of, of investments. So I think it's really exciting and interesting on where that ultimately evolves. We're still very early innings. I have to say that uh, congratulations to you though, because a lot of, I don't know a lot of asset management companies that are are focused on, uh, you know, things like blockchain and how they can, uh, you know, how that can, can uh, be a source of competitive advantage as you apply it uh, in, in everything that you do. Uh, you know, and it's funny that you say that because I, uh, I, I don't have a, a tremendous amount of expertise in either place, but one of the things I've been saying for years is they are separate. Blockchain has the ability to change the world and change everything that we do for all the reasons you said better than me, and Bitcoin, we'll see. Uh, you know, it, it's currency and it's a whole different bucket. Um, we have a question that came in, uh, Jenny, just to shift gears a little bit, and, and, and this is a topic I'm sure that you talk about quite frequently. Um, the question is, um, people always talk about the disadvantages to being a woman in the financial services industry. Do you feel there are any advantages? And then the follow-on was, what piece of advice do you give to young women starting out their careers? Uh, and there are still not uh, uh, a lot or and, and certainly enough uh, uh, CEOs that are women in financial services or anywhere. So you, you must, this is a topic, those questions, uh, you get them a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, First, let me just say that I'm, I'm a passionate person about D&I because I think it's a great growth story. Why do I think it's a growth story? Because the fact is, differing views solve differing problems. And I'll give you a little uh, example of uh, something my daughter said to me that reminded me why differing views matter so much. She was a camp counselor and they asked, you know, they were doing a little trivia and they asked the group of campers, um, what's the capital of Maine? And that this little like five or six year old camper raises her hand and my daughter said, she thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. She knows the capital of Maine. And uh, she said, it's, uh, what is it? A is Augusta, the capital, I can't remember, but it was the, the letter, the capital letter. Oh no, sorry, she said M for the capital of Maine. So it wasn't, you know, she, her, her solution was something that anybody by the age of seven or eight would have lost sight of that, right? Because you'd have known that it was Augusta was the capital of Maine, not that M was the capital. But in solving problems, sometimes the best solutions come from completely out of left field. And if you don't have a diverse workforce, you're not going to get those. So that's one. So that's why I'm just 
you know, kind of passionate about the topic. It is just going to give you better opportunities. And for investors, it's going to be important to understand market opportunities. So that's one. And then I would say, what's it, one of the advantages of being to a woman? I do think I probably get more speaking engagements uh, because I'm a woman now. I don't know. <laughs> That's good. You know, that example that you gave, my three children are in their early 20s now. And one of the great things that uh, that they bring, and I think younger generation typically does this, is the value of different perspectives. And the emphasis, not only do they bring different perspectives, but they they push hard on saying, no, no, dad, you got to listen to it from this perspective. You're, you're, you're occupying the spot you always occupy on this. Think over here. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is we we have the same view, uh, and we're uh, trying to endeavor to do the same thing at Rockefeller. I, I like to talk about uh, a diverse group of eclectic people from every conceivable background, and you put them together, and then you get this petri dish of better ideas, and and uh, and and you know people looking at it, the the, uh, the Rubik's cube and turning it in a different direction, in a direction that is just not instinctive for somebody from a different background. Exactly. So great way to think about it. Um, what um, if, if we stay that stay with that for a second though? What what do you think? Because uh, you know your CEO of this company put three decades in, did you know worked in every conceivable spot in it, have a, a iron grip on the strategy. Uh, so you know you you did it the hard way, uh, and and uh, you know the question is how do we accelerate women more women into leadership roles, whether it's in financial services or in, in industries more broadly. You know, it's half the population, and it's a spectacularly talented group of human beings, uh, and 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 they, you know, they're they're still not represented, even even in Congress, uh, you know, in, in so many different places. So, what 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 are your views on accelerating women into leadership roles? So, so I think, like anything, pipeline matters, and I'm gonna, you know, and you have to understand why you lose people at each stage of the pipeline. But one of the things that resonated me with me is my. When I was asking, I have five kids and my three daughters, you know, are any of you guys interested in in coming into my business? And my one of my daughters said, Mom, I want to go do something that helps people. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This business helps people. We help people achieve the most important goals of their life. You know, talk to somebody who doesn't have enough money to retire and the fear that they have or they have a special needs child and, you know, they need to put a trust away for them. I mean, those are really important things. Their kids' education. And I think as an industry, first of all, we need to talk about what we do in a way that is purposeful and resonates. Uh, because, you know, not to be stereotypical, but I'll be stereotypical a little bit and say, well, if you're gonna, you have to relate to women on what they're looking for. And if they want a purposeful, and that's not to say that men don't want a purposeful uh, business, but if they want it to be purposeful, we have to describe it that way. So that's one. Uh, we do programs, you know, at the high school level, at the college level to, to bring in girls into the firm so they can see themselves being successful. So it's not this, oh, it's, this, you know, Wall Street out there. I, I can't see myself there. If you bring them in in an internship, they actually start to get really excited and say, well, actually, I understand what this means. So bringing them in, recruiting, and then measuring whether you're doing retention. So are you retaining uh, these women once you're bringing them in? Uh, and then more recently, and then measuring, uh, you know, are they getting promoted? Are they staying with the firm? Are you being flexible when they hit a point in their life where they're, you know, maybe are having children and 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 trying to, and are you bringing them back into the system if they choose to stay home for a period of time? So I think all of those things have to address kind of the, 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 the pipeline of women throughout the, the process. And then I'm just going to throw one other thing out that I hadn't 
I've never talked about before uh, publicly, but came up with three friends of mine who are very senior women who would tell you that throughout their career, they never felt that they found resistance because they were being a, uh, because they were a woman. But as they got very, very senior, so uh, president, even CEO, or looking at being on boards, that was the first time they felt resistance. And I think there, it's going to be very important that that's where men are allies and that finding that mentor that will help them shepherd through kind of that last, whether you caught the glass ceiling or whatever, but that kind of that last piece of it. Uh, I was fortunate, I'm in a family business. I have my father and brother very supportive of me, um, but it was interesting talking to women about that kind of still this feeling of, no experience of it until the sort of very end of the chain where there were that final step of opportunity. That's uh, very interesting. And, and frankly, uh, over the course of my career, I have said and I've tried to provide mentorship. You know, uh, a mentor doesn't have to fit a bucket. So a, a man can, a senior ex uh, male executive can mentor uh, a woman uh, and, and, you know, people should, and you need to do that. It, that in fact is going to have to happen because if if the, exactly uh, if the overwhelming uh, number of senior executives are still male in an industry that is finally diversifying, you're going to need mentors to be male for for women. So I think it's a great point. Um, sure, for sure. Jen, Jenny, what about if we shift back to, uh, just to 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 uh, to keep the flow? If we shift back to investing, you mentioned ESG. It's a topic near and dear to our hearts at Rockefeller because the family, the Rockefellers, were pioneers in ESG investing. And we've been at it on our asset management side for, for longer than most, thanks to the family. And in fact, they coined the phrase impact investing at the Rockefeller Foundation in 2007. So, wow. uh, yeah, so we, we, we love talking about ESG, uh, as do those children of mine that are in their 20s. So. Um, how, how does Franklin look at ESG and, and uh, you know, where are you uh, in terms of um, uh, building it into, you know, a company managing a trillion five? You know, I think that um, one of the benefits of being a global firm is places like Europe and Australia were really pushing this. Uh, you're fortunate because the Rockefellers were focused on it and so you built it in. But there are a lot of U.S. companies that up until a couple of years ago, U.S. investors and institutions weren't really pushing on it. You know, you look at where Europe is on the regulation, um, they're coming out with what's called, if your products don't meet what they call Article 6, 8, and 9, and 6 is, I can clearly articulate how I consider the risks of environmental, social, and governance. Article 8 is, essentially, I will overweight in my decision-making process those factors. And Article 9 is what you referred to as real impact investing. Uh, and if you don't have products that fit those those category, you are just not going to get traction in Europe. Jenny, did we lose you? There back. you go. I don't know. You, I lost you for a second. Just you not said sure what happened here. In Europe, yeah, we, uh, we we got most of it. Okay. So, um, you know, for us, every investment team has to own their ESG. Uh, you know, process. We have an, a part of that investment data lake is they will contribute uh, data into it and it's shared with amongst all the teams. We think today the data is not good. You know, if you take the top five ESG providers, they only correlate their, their outcomes 57% of the time. So it just shows you that the information is, 
you know, is not really consistent out there. And so active managers who engage with, uh, with, with management teams and go out and seek the data themselves have a real advantage on the ESG side. And so each of our teams are very focused on being able to articulate that clearly. So Jenny, uh, you, you mentioned, and we've seen this, Europe is far ahead in terms of uh, investor and client appetite for ESG, but we see momentum gathering in the US. How fast does that come? And you know, it, it gets a lot of attention now. Larry talks about a lot at BlackRock, obviously. Uh, do you think uh, in, in four or five years or 10 years, uh, it, you know, ESG investing will be something that, that dominates the retail space and, and uh, is a big part of institutional portfolios? Absolutely. I mean, I was surprised um, when I, again, traveling around in Europe, everybody asked about it, right? So, so if you think about two years ago, everybody was asking about it. Um, I'd say the year before the pandemic hit, I'd go around the U.S. Occasionally, some institutions asked about it. You know, one or two you'd find were very serious about it. A year later, everyone, when I traveled around to clients, every single institution asked about what are you doing in ESG? Some of them weren't sure where their position was, but they knew they needed to understand it. And then what's been the most astonishing is with Asia and just how much that has taken off. You have a couple of markets, I think Hong Kong, Singapore are trying to replicate what the, what the EU has done around the regulatory environment. Uh, and so it's, I, I think it's here to stay for sure. Yeah. And what about, uh, Jenny, another uh, topic that you get asked a lot, I'm, I'm sure, but that uh, is, is so relevant is uh, uh, vehicles. You know, so um, and, and we have a question that was sent in on this, but I also had it on my list as well. I would be interested in Jenny's views on new vehicles and asset management, the future of mutual funds, ETFs, SMAs. You know, will passive has passive peaked? Will it keep going? Uh, SMAs are, are obviously a, a major force now. It, what, what comes after SMA? Just your view on, on uh, the vehicle through which retail investors are accessing Franklin. So I, I actually think that, uh, so first of all, any large ass, any asset manager has to be vehicle agnostic, right? There, if you take ETFs, there's just a distribution channel that wants to sell only ETFs. And there there's benefits to ETFs. Some of them, you know, it can have, uh, interday trading, it has some tax efficiency. There's benefits to, to traditional mutual fund. There's benefits to an SMA, right? So each of them, even a closed end fund has certain types of benefits. So what we say is our expertise is our investment capability and we'll package them in whatever vehicle the client wants. So that's one. And those, that's usually determined by the investment mandate, the characteristics of the vehicle. And ultimately you would argue even how from an advice standpoint, people are getting paid. I do think that technology is going to enable the SMA to be brought down to a very, and tokenization is going to be part of this, to a much, much smaller level. So I think you're going to see a lot less traditional sort of vehicles like mutual funds and a lot more of these SMA types of accounts, even down to $25,000. I mean, I think that the technology is just going to now allow that kind of customization. And, and does that continue to put pressure, though, on the, you know, the uh, if you if, if SMAs are that user friendly down to that amount, the mutual fund industry then continues to stay under pressure, I would guess, right, as a vehicle. Yeah, but, I, but again, I think that mutual fund companies have to think of themselves as just that their expertise is the investment capability, how they package it 
is going to be is just the vehicle. That's just wrapping. That's just the wrapping that you're putting these things in. And so uh, I think that the asset management business has to continue to evolve with that, uh, and and they will. Uh, and that's also why scale will help you. You know, because you're going to have to make investments in all those technologies. Yeah, Jenny. What if we uh, uh, shift gears to um, work after pandemic, including cities? You know, your uh, uh, you know, Franklin's uh, headquarters are out in San Mateo, right next to San Francisco. And, you know, you've got major presence in New York. We're in New York. So uh, as we start to come out of this and, and uh, uh, enough people get vaccinated that we reach the herd immunity and life starts to, quote, return to normal. A couple of questions for you, actually. What, what and we touched on some of this, but what will normal look like uh, in 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 the in the post COVID nineteen world, in terms of work and uh, work life balance and and things like that. Uh, so I, I'm a big believer that normal is going to look like um, a hybrid of office and um, and and work from home. You know, if you Greg have a great employee and you set a policy that says everybody must come to, come into the office, and that employee says, you know, for personal reasons, I really need to be living over here. Are you really gonna say, no, you can't do that? And the second you say, yes, you could do it and be flexible, um, then others are gonna look to it. And so then it becomes a fairness thing. So, you know, I, I hate to tell the story about our, um, he's now our chief innovation officer, but at the time he was their chief technology officer. And it was, Gosh, it must have been in early 2000. He said, for personal reasons, I need to leave the company. I have to go live in Connecticut. And I said to him, well, why don't we try, see how you do in, in Connecticut? Let's see how it goes. For five years, he had to put a T1 line in. I mean, that's how long ago this was. He was in there working from home. Nobody ever knew that our CTO was working out of his home. They never even thought about it. He was like everybody else because we had created this environment of video. So, you know, for me, it was about retaining a really great employee. And I think that firms who don't create a more flexible environment around where people work are going to not be able to compete for talent. On the other hand, getting people together, having that time where you just get to know each other a little bit personally, those connections are important too. And those only happen when you get time really in person. So I think that it's going to be a combination of both home and in the office. And do you, it sounds like, I mean, one of you all really were ahead of the curve on video. Because one of the things, the stories I've been telling, you know, just anecdotes that I, I tell for fun now, is the video, the, the massive acceptance of video so quickly. Because, you know, you get the question early on in the pandemic, people would say to me, well, you lived through September 11th, you were downtown uh, in New York. Uh, you know, what what are the parallels? And I said, you know, after September 11th, there was this whole notion that um, uh, that people wouldn't, where everybody was leaving New York, nobody wanted to live downtown. And you know, 18 years later, Brooklyn was the hottest place in the world. And not only did people live downtown, they went all the way out. They were going farther and farther out in Brooklyn. I mean, you know, September 11th, in that sense, didn't have many lasting implications beyond airplanes and airports were different. Um, here, uh, it, it seems uh, it, it, the pandemic has hit everybody. In every, you know, all around the world. And it seems that it's instilling things that, that really are going to change as you just described. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm amazed by is, is if you get on the telephone now uh, and you're, you're not on video, people think, well, don't you want to see me? Yeah. Where 12 months ago, nobody was looking at anybody when they talked 
to them. There was a conference call. There were, you know, but Franklin, it sounds like you were ahead of that. You 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 were on video, given the 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 dispersed workforce and the fact that you were operating in so many places. You had already done because you had to be the exception on that. Maybe there were technology companies that did some of it, but I don't think so. I think even the tech companies they they had physical meetings and they talked on the phone. We we jokingly say that when we um, we had Microsoft's uh, development team in for Microsoft Teams that we were actually using Microsoft Teams sort of much more pervasively within our firm than Microsoft seemed to be at the time. Uh, and, and again, you know, we started out, it was, it was something called a Tanberg system. I think it was owned by Cisco and it was literally a separate device um, that you, you know, that you had. And so what you found is that you had to create a culture where people could manage in that environment. And um, it, believe me, it was slow on our own adoption. Some people were really comfortable with it immediately and others, I mean, our legal department, I joked about how they put a tape over their camera all the time and you never got anybody in the legal department to, to be on video. Uh, and so, you know, but over time, I love this from the standpoint that it has accelerated that process um, within firms. And just like, I think the pandemic, when people say what fundamental changes happened, I actually think the pandemic just accelerated trends that were already happening. And I think this is one of those. Yeah, the, the speed with which it did is one of the things that I talk about as a surprise. I mean, the the, the massive uh, acceptance of uh, video as the as the dominant means of interfacing between human beings, uh, it took 12 months. I mean, you know, it, it's it's incredible. And because uh, I, I never would have conceived, and I think most people in the workforce away from Franklin would not have conceived of trying to uh, make a phone call where I saw the person on the other side for the phone call, which is effectively what this is. Uh, you know, I, you saw it on Star Trek, right? And it was like, it was, it was you know, as a kid, I was like, what, wouldn't that be neat? And now it's, it's everywhere. So uh, I do think um, you're proof positive that it's merely accelerating what was already there uh, because uh, you already had it. And I think that people don't always give all the credit to some of the benefits. So if you're doing a, a you know a video call and you can see nine people's faces and you're having a sensitive topic and you're talking about it, you can read how it's being received by your team in a way that if everybody's in the room, you don't necessarily get that feedback. Um, and so you know again, there's there's pluses and minuses, and that's why I think ultimately it's a hybrid. But there's some real genuine pluses to it. That's a very good point. And actually, my, my team, uh, particularly uh, any call that I'm on with multiple people, uh, I say put the camera on because that's why we're here. Otherwise, we could just do a conference call uh, for the same reason. So you can, you know, and, and it, it increases the uh, the uh, focus and, and efficiency of the call as well. Uh, Jenny, what about the cities that we love, though? Uh, San Francisco and New York, as an example. What's the implication for them of what we're, you know, what you're describing here in terms of post-pandemic flexibility where if you have a superstar employee and they want to be in Austin and, and, and they, it can work in, in other ways, okay, what does that mean for New York and for San Francisco and these places that had been the draw for so much of the talent in the United States? Well, first of all, I really wish I had the answer to it because it would help uh, our team as we're looking at our nine locations and our $100 million in rent annually at, in New York City. Um, and trying to figure out what this future looks like. So I think it's it, it's it's hard because we don't really know. 
Um, on the other hand, you know, look, you can't, if you're a New Yorker, the access to just the cultural diversity and opportunity, I mean, you know, that will always bring people together. And one of the reasons I, you know, like going to New York City is I can see so many of my clients in, in one place. I don't know that that completely goes away. There's benefits to certain hubs like that. You know, why does Silicon Valley have the innovation that it's had? It's a culture of innovation. Why, why can't it be replicated in so many other places? You get a little bit in Austin, some in Boston, but it really hasn't had the same kind of replication in other places. So there's something about the DNA of those locations that I, I don't think it just goes away overnight. I, I think there's still gonna be a, a draw. Um, but it's going to be different. No question, it's going to be different. I, I I don't know the answer. We're we're literally studying this this question right now. Yeah, and obviously implications for real estate investing, office space in New York, and and so many different things. You know, uh, it's a topic that we spend a lot of time talking about, also from the business side, but also from the, you know, New York is right now a shell of what it was, and we need to get workers back in and make it a magnet again. It's such a unique place. San Francisco similar. Um, Jenny, a, a question here uh, that's a good one. Uh, you mentioned the benefit of the democratization of investing and increasingly frictionless access. Do you think this next generation of investors, Generation Z, the millennials, invest differently? And if so, how do, how do you see that market structure evolving? And that comes in from Grace Yoon, who you know. So I, I'm going to say that the two things that I think will be um, different um, I, I think that this ESG and impact isn't a fad um, and that it will be core to how that next generation wants to invest. And so there'll be much more accountability for companies um, and they're, they're going to have to be able to talk to those things. And then I think on the tokenization and the access to the alternative space, you know, there's so much money flowing in uh, the private markets that companies have waited a lot longer to go public. And in waiting longer to go public, what was traditionally that growth trajectory now is only benefited by the qualified investors in the private assets, right? So we, as from a societal standpoint, I think as an industry, we have to recapture that growth uh, trajectory and make sure that it's available to the mass to the masses. Otherwise, we it's the haves and have-nots. So. Uh, I think tokenization helps to do that. I think using certain vehicles, you know, people talk about in 401k managed accounts, you could add some privates into it. You got to be careful of running with scissors, right? Which is I I'm going all private and then you're stuck and, and, you know, somebody didn't really understand what they were investing in. But the ability to bring that into the consumer, I think is going to be important. And I think the technology is going to enable it. What I hope doesn't change is that, I genuinely believe people need advice when it comes to uh, investing. And I just believe it because sure, robos you know, can help do a certain amount, but people are incredibly emotional with their money. And it has been proven over and over that they you know, buy high and sell low. And when you have somebody providing advice, they just calm you through those difficult times. And then the other piece of this, when you think like a GameStop, you know, I do worry that this this kind of swarm mentality in social media that could say, let's punish the bad guys at Wall Street, which is a little bit about what people wanted to do. Um, you know, 
what I worried about was, did they also really understand what they were risking when they were jumping in really late onto a GameStop and, and losing money? And, you know, that's where the tools are going to be such that free trading and others are enabling people to, to do those kinds of things. But I hope that people continue to, to leverage advice in there and that just the tools that advisors are able to provide um, are all that much more powerful and that they bring that access to those private markets down to the to the masses. Jenny, I mean, uh, music to my ears. We're building a firm around that concept, which is advice. And one of the words that, that I like to use at Rockefeller are, uh, is uh, counselors. So, you know, we have private wealth advisors and client advisors that function as really counselors to clients. And they're there for the stability of approach and for the pragmatism at all times. And helping them with, and, and as you said, uh, what's more important, the answer to your daughter, who, who not, you know, not surprisingly looks in and says, oh, wait a minute, how is that helping the world? But the reality is people do need help uh, with the wealth that they create. We have so many clients who create wealth through building businesses, through so much hard work for so many years, but they might not make the, the, the decisions that are best for their families with wealth. So we bring, you know, private wealth advisors in who act as counselors. It's so important. And I, I was on a, a panel the other day where I said, people will pay for advice for a very long time. If it's good advice, they need it, that, you know, there's expertise that's brought. So I, I love hearing that, that, that from you. Well, and I think, you know, unfortunately what we've seen is when you have big momentum markets, everybody's a brilliant investor, right? And, and that's also why passive tends to do better because market cap, you know, investing tends to do well in a momentum market. The problem is, do people understand their fundamental risk in that? You know, when Tesla gets entered into the to the index, how does the index risk profile change? And um, and Tesla's a great company in so many ways, but you know, great companies also can have large valuations that may or may not be warranted. And so, um, I just you know, having that approach to portfolio construction where you're understanding true risk allocation uh, is, I, I just think, is essential. Uh, uh, completely agreed. Uh, while we have a few minutes left, I wanted to uh, ask you about uh, advice uh, to young people. And I know you, you're uh, you're raising five of your own. Um, so, what advice do you give young people as they uh, as they begin to embark on careers? Uh, let, let's start with that. And then, and then the, the 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 question under that are are strengths most important for young people to be able to you know, to, to do jobs where they're they're motivated and they and they do well. But what, what is the counsel that you provide at home and, and to you, you speak in front of many, many young people at Franklin and everywhere? I mean, to be honest, I think one of the most important things I think is you have to be passionate about what you do. You know, I, I work a lot, but I love what I do so it doesn't feel like work. And, you know, if you're passionate about what you do, you, you won't work a day in your life. And so pursuing that passion, I think, is is um, really important. And, and then what I say to people is if you're not passionate about it, you're never going to be great at it. There's always going to be somebody who's going to be, even if you're naturally talented at it, you're not going to be great unless you're passionate. So that's one. And then I think the skill sets, um, I, I read it, uh, uh, it was a Harvard business study, I think, on kind of, uh, it was actually about leaders and CEOs and what were some of the uh, characteristics that they have. And and I thought it was really good. It was, you know, you have to have courage, right? You're gonna have courage. You have to be willing to take some risks. Uh, you have to be resilient because Greg, I'm sure you and I can name as many failures, if not more than successes in our careers, 
but it's about standing up, dusting yourself off and going at it again, right? And not, not being deterred by that. And I think that resilience piece is absolutely essential. And then the fourth one, which I don't hear enough about, which I, when I read it, I was like, yes, which is working with ambiguity. So sometimes it's not all gonna be laid out for you. And you have to own your career. You have to not be afraid of, of uh, sometimes not having it all laid out. And sometimes the best opportunities come when you're working in a little bit ambiguous environment and suddenly something pops up and you says, you say, I think I can go do that. Uh, and again, that circles back to kind of the risk taking. So I think those are the key characteristics and of all of them, I think it's that resilience piece. It's so funny. I mean, those are, they're all great. And it's a, it's a, you're, I think you're spot on. I, I have a uh, top 10 pieces of career advice because I gave a talk the other day and I had grit second. And I talked in that, uh, in that panel about failures. And, and, and I said, you know, everybody pick the biggest name has had a career with, you know, it, it looks like a stock price chart. For so sure. you, you can draw the, the the line through it. The regression looks good for Jenny Johnson and, and you know, for a lot of people, but the, li the lines look like this. And and what happens in a, in a person's career is down to what happens when you're down on that line? What happens when, you know, you're at the low points? What do you do with it? And that resilience, and it may be that you need a change. You need to do something else. It may be you need to dust yourself off, as you said, and go make this happen now. Uh, and I actually told a, 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 a brief anecdote around when I was a vice president in, in investment banking at, at Merrill, and this managing director just was crushing me. And I was like, "Am I going to be? My, am I going to make it?" And and I ended up running investment banking at you know along the trajectory. And by the way, that guy tried to be nice. It was a little late, um, <laughs> but but uh, you know that that resilience. I'm a hundred percent with you, uh, and I, I I lead with that more and more as I get older. For sure. So I have one final one for you, uh, uh, which goes to this inflection points in your career, you know, good and challenging that help shape the ultimate career path. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've had a bunch. I don't know if there's uh, one or two you want to share. So I, you know, interestingly, I deviated from the traditional investment path at Franklin. We, we had a bank at one point and I ran the credit card department and then ultimately uh, ran a consumer lending group. And I, if, if you point my greatest failure, it was the beginning of running that consumer lending. Because let me tell you, the culture of people who lend money versus people who manage money is very different. You have to be very skeptical when you're a lender. And I went in as client service oriented. And we ran into a lot of problems. And it was the hardest time. I, I describe it today as I remember waking up sometimes in the morning and sort of in bed in the fetal position thinking about my day of going to see regulators or the board and explain the problems that we've had. But I also have to tell you, it was the greatest experience to, for me today when I look about running Franklin Templeton that I learned in that time. When you run a small company, you have all the same problems as running a big company, just more zeros. Uh, I learned about credit, which became relevant. I learned about technology in that. Um, so you know, back to that resilience thing, often those most painful moments are the best experience that you will have when you look back on what built your, your, your career. Yeah, I don't want to even try to embellish that. That was spectacular. Uh, it's been tremendous to have you here. Uh, uh, we can all see why Franklin is in such good hands. Uh, congratulations on all you've done there, uh, the role that you currently have, and the future of the, the company uh, in, in great hands. So really appreciate you being here today, Jenny. 
My great pleasure, Greg, and, and thank you. And love Rockefeller as a partner and just really, uh, really great to, to get this chance to talk to you. Well, uh, I'm going, I always close with quotations for our clients and uh, our team. So I have two and one uh, I was scrolling to because you just said it. You said you 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 work very hard, but you love what you do, so it isn't uh, like uh, work. Pearl Buck, the author, said, uh, "Quote: The secret of joy in work is contained in one word: excellence. To know how to do something well is to enjoy it." And I always love that one. And then I had Amelia Earhart, uh, and this was partly because uh, uh, you are, uh, you know, an outstanding CEO. Uh, but a woman in a in a in a role that uh, is is still the exception rather than the rule, which hopefully changes. I keep telling my daughters the 21st century is the century of women. So <laughs> let's hope we get there. But Amelia Earhart said, uh, and I quote: "The most difficult decision is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. The fears are paper tigers. You can do anything you decide to do. You can act to change and control your life." And the procedure, the process is its own reward. So uh, for uh, Rockefeller clients, colleagues and friends, thank you for being here. Uh, Jenny Johnson, thank you so much. That was terrific. Uh, this was our 22nd and I neglected to say up front that Jenny said she was happy it was our 22nd because that was her uniform number in high school uh, on her basketball team. So uh, uh, it was a fortuitous thing that we had her here today. So Jenny, thanks again for being here. Uh, all the best to our clients and and uh, and my colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller uh, for uh, the rest of the week. Uh, and as we start to head, uh, at least in the Northeast, out of winter into spring. Stay upbeat uh, and we'll see you all soon. Thanks very much.